0: Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Radio Show on Cairo Radio. It is your friend Tom Douglas right here at the hot stove, sitting in uh, with uh, my good pal Chef Terry Rochero, the chef of the chef. welcome, Chef.
1: Hello, Tom. How are you doing? Super awesome. Happy sunny Friday. Yeah, I know. It's beautiful.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Oh. I'm chef owner of uh, Sirius Takeout in Ballard, 14th and 52nd there, uh, just off of market. Uh, I'm uh, Of course, we have Sirius Pie downtown and of and the Sea town Market Diner down there at the north end area of the Pike Place Market. So,
1: Ooh, I like that name.
0: Seatown Market Diner.
1: C- yeah, C-town I love Market that Diner. name. Diner,
0: yeah. I think we've decided to name. combine all three of our restaurants down there, the Etta's, Seatown, and the Rub Shack, into one name. So we're good we're, we're trying name. it out. These things never come fast <laughs> to me. They never, they're never they
1: never easy. <laughs> and I'm Terry Rotturo, the chef in a hat owner of Luc in Madison Valley, where we finally have now reopened outside. Our patio has been covered. Uh, we have a gorgeous covering of the patio, and um, we are welcoming all of you on our sixth table we have outside. This
0: is a mighty fine weekend to have your restaurant open outside, Chef, I'm just going to say. Good timing. It is a good weekend. <laughs> it's it's very, been cold very as hell, uh, and then all of a sudden it's 75 degrees, and Chef is open for business. That's right. Smart. In the- Innate sense of timing. We have a big show for you today. Uh, Terry and I are going to talk about tasty condiments that come in tubes. Our favorite tube condiments. And if you're watching on Facebook, you can see all the different ones that we've purchased. Um, M Vietnamese coffee is all the r- rage, and Yen V or Yen Z. I, I always call her Yen V, but I'm, I'm wrong on that. Will tell us all about importing and roasting her own coffee beans, which is kind of fun. Hey, hey Terry, have you met uh, Yen V before?
1: No, no, no. I can't wait. I can't wait to.
0: Yeah, she's awesome.
1: But I've been been to the place. I actually have not been to the place. My son and my daughter in law picked me up some goodies from there, and it was so delicious. I was very impressed.
0: Good. It's Earth Day. It's time to talk about the climate change and the diet change that goes with it. Salt, kosher, and finishing salts are must haves in your modern day pantry. I couldn't agree more. I used four different salts yesterday at home, or at the was we'll yesterday or two days ago when you came over for dinner? Two days ago. Four different salts in my one meal, uh, which is kind of fun. Uh, our talented pastry chef, Stacy Fortner, is going to talk about gluten-free desserts. And lastly, uh, of course, we're going to have our Rub With Love Tasty Trivia Challenge to wrap up the show. Uh, I have been on a hot streak. Uh, poor chef has been paying for shipping and all the things yeah, that what? go with losing here when you lose Tasty Trivia. But uh, we, okay. will have a, we will have a, a, a winner today. Pamela, uh, what has, what's somebody going to win if they, if, um, when we finish the Tasty Trivia? Because no, so many wins automatically. It's a matter of who has to pay for shipping. That really is the big loser in this.
2: <laughs> well, this week the products are very light because it's all um, Earth Day oriented, veggie rub, of course, peri-peri, and exotic mushroom rub. So mm. you guys better try really hard to win this contest.
0: Well, like I said, somebody's <laughs> going to win it. It's just a matter of who has to pay to get it to them. Uh, first, though, let's uh, talk about our taste of the week. Chef Thierry, um, what is your taste of the week?
1: Well, my, uh, my taste of the week is uh, a little bit of a walk through memory lane. of uh, We were talking with Kathy, my wife, and uh, somehow she, she said, I feel like carrot cake. Now, I don't know about you, Tom, but I haven't had carrot cake in probably 20 years.
0: Well, so, Pamela used to run a vegetarian restaurant. I'm sure they had massive carrot cakes that's every day. What, that's what they all did in the yeah, 70s. You, we had carrot
1: well, cakes. Well, you know, in the, in the 70s, it was the rage. I mean, yeah. I used to make carrot cake, Other Rovers, I made carrot cake with ginger. and So, anyway, she wanted to make a carrot cake. And, you know, she made a fabulous carrot cake with a beautiful icing of cream cheese and powdered sugar and a little bit of vanilla. It was absolutely scrumptious. And it reminded me. Uh, you know, when you read recipes about carrot cake, you you find all kind of different recipes. Some of them ask to boil the carrots, and and I'm like, who does that? You get the flavor out of the carrots because it's raw, you know, and that's a beautiful flavor. When it bakes, that's how you get the nice carrot flavor. Mm-hmm. And the carrots that have over winter right now are absolutely delicious, full of sugar and uh, great carrot sweetness. So um it was delicious. With another trick that she played. She didn't put any ginger because I wanted some ginger, but she didn't put any in there. So she didn't have any. But she put um, pineapple cubes. You know, she, she made like little diced pineapple. Mm-hmm, that's a and classic. Put that in, and put that in there. And that was really, really, it's a beautiful touch in the carrot cake. So uh, revisiting carrot cake and was very impressed. And I forgot how delicious it can be.
0: Well, I do get a hankering once in a while for a piece of carrot cake, but it's mostly about the icing. It's not so much about the cake.
1: Yeah, you know what? I'm with you. I think I think I'm the same time. Like, you know, if you put that 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 nice cream cheese, everything finished with nice zest of lemon, mm-hmm. a touch of lemon, it's got that bite, that gorgeous bite, sweet and punk. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's delicious. And I'm with you. It's not too much icing, but just that, oh, that zing. Oh, that I don't on.
0: know about that, chef.
1: Well, I'm a, I'm a little. I'm I mean,
0: a fan of like that. At least quarter inch, maybe half inch of icing on top. Just something that makes you go into a little bit of a diabetic coma uh, by the time you finish (laughs) your slice. Okay, my taste of the week isn't a taste, but it's another shopping technique. If if you listen to our show for a while, you know I'm all about shopping techniques. How to be, you know, sometimes making the best dinner means being the best shopper, right? Because anyone can go to the butcher shop and say, I want a tomahawk steak, or I want a rib steak, or I want a New York steak, right? Well, when you're buying a New York steak, you've got to make sure when you look at the steaks that you don 't buy a New York steak with the, the nerve end running through it right there 's on a right. whole, on a whole sirloin roast there 's about twelve or thirteen uh, 12 ounce steaks on it right The first four mm-hmm. steaks from the from the nerve end have a big piece of gristle running through them, and right. it 's the same price if you get the ones that don 't have the gristle running through them so it 's a matter of being a good Correct. shopper and recognizing it. So I was down at Don and Joe's in the Pike Place Market. You know, I've been working down at Seatown shucking oysters on the weekend. I've been hanging out in the market more recently. I was down at Don and Joe's, and I didn't go down there for a tomahawk, but I saw one in the case, and it was from the shoulder end of the chop. And and when you're buying, like, a pork chop, same thing, right? You want to buy from the shoulder end of the pork chop. That's that darker colored meat. It's more marbled with fat. And so I said to him, that looks like that's from the shoulder, and that's my favorite end of the prime rib. When I'm eating prime rib, I like that shoulder end because it's more marbled and fatty. He says, you're the only person who's ever said that to me. So what it it meant was, I'm a a good shopper. I know what I'm looking for, and I'm I'm getting a more marbled steak rather than from the very other end, which is the leanest part of the rib roast. And it's the same price, either one. So when you have your choice, it's important to understand what you're trying to buy and that goes with buying salmon from the collar end rather than from the tail end or whatever it is in the case if you have the opportunity to pick at least know your product well enough to pick well
1: i'm sure then Donnie was like oh my god i'm glad there's only one tom douglas on the market
0: <laughs> yeah and what a pain in the uh, butt that tom douglas is yeah, right exactly no they we'll were happy that i recognized States. it they they were happy that you know that somebody understood <laughs> their meat counter like they do so you know sometimes right. those guys don't even know you know, a lot, just because right, you're a meat right, cutter right. doesn't mean you're a good cook. Coming right. up, it's food in tubes. Some of our favorite little uh, condiments that we keep in our pantries, all in a little aluminum or plastic tube. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. And we're back to the Hot Stove Society Kitchen on Cairo Radio. I'm Tom Douglas.
1: And I'm Jerry Rothgerold of Chuck and Hat. And, Terry and we're going to London because we're going to talk tubes. <laughs> oh, that's really
0: funny, Chef. Oh, always really really You got I me did. on that one. I thought we were going to London I to did. see the Prince Philip's uh, funeral or something. But I guess not. We're no. going to take the tube no, no. around the city. Chef, you and I were talking last week, and we talked about some of the tubes that we keep in our condiment shelf and in our fridge. I always keep mine in the fridge. Right. I'm not sure if they have to be because I've not looked, but I always do anyway. And we were talking about all the different ones available. So I went home and I looked in my fridge, because I knew there were some that I hadn't really mentioned. And one was a tube of ginger paste. One was a tube oh, of wasabi. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. I had I have a one. tube of chipotle paste. And then, you know, because oh. chipotle, when you, it used to be when you whenever I needed chipotle, I had to open one of those little cans, and then, then you end up with all the yeah. extra adobo sauce and, and chilies mm-hmm. left over. Uh, and then I had the ones that we talked about on the air, which was harissa, tomato paste, anchovy paste, and um, garlic paste. Uh, I don't use the garlic paste. I, I only use fresh garlic. I'm, I'm fed up yeah. to my ears with all this jarred garlic that just tastes terrible. I hate, hate the stuff.
1: This actually tastes pretty good.
0: All right. I I'm going to have to it. try it. You recommend it. Okay. So, Jeff, uh, what do you have in your fridge and what do you have in front of you that you want to share with our listeners about and Tell us the tubes that you have and how you use them. Why you wouldn't just use, like, you, for example, you're holding up right now a fresh or a tube of garlic. Why wouldn't you just use fresh? How, why is this convenient for you?
1: Okay, so garlic paste is a different usage than regular garlic. Regular garlic, if I'm making an instant sauce, you know, like a pasta or stew, tomato stew, I will use that. But sometimes you're making a, a couple of days ago, I had a celery root soup. And I was like, you know, it was beautiful, at like the gorgeous zinc. And I said, you know what it's missing? I'm going to put a little dollop of garlic paste in there. And it definitely helped bring a different layer of flavor in there. And I would have, it would have been completely I would have not gone and sliced, peeled and sliced garlic and roast garlic and put that in the soup. That would have been a completely different flavor profile. This was a, you know, I, th- I thought this was really delicious to be added to it. Mm-hmm. So for soup, stews, Last minute added, you know, just a quick dash in there. And also, this is actually okay if you do some toast and you spray a little bit on there. If you, at the last minute, decide, oh, I'm going to have, uh, let's say, a pate camp with cornichon and mustard. A little touch of that really helps bring another layer of flavor. So it has its moment. It's not something I use every day mm-hmm. by any stretch of imagination, but it's in my fridge and it's in the door. So I see it and I go, oh, I can use it.
0: Okay. That's one of the items I'm going to use. I'm going to tell you my first one then, uh, sure. which is um, anchovy paste. I always mm. keep a tube of anchovy paste, and I keep whole anchovies in my fridge too. And I often keep pickled anchovies, or so the bucarones that uh, we've become, yeah. we've been getting for yeah, yeah. the last ten years or so in this marketplace. Uh, so there's the salted, packed in oil anchovies, which are filets. There's the bucarones, which are the little anchovy filets pickled in vinegar. In the tube, I use the anchovy paste, and I use it in a lot of places you might not expect because uh, I used to use it even more, but now because of fish sauce being out there so uh, readily available, I use fish sauce in its place sometimes because it's really you're trying for the same thing, right? You're getting that kind of underlying depth of flavor that you don't really know where it's coming from. It's like an umami kind of quality. kind of an umami thing. It's not the kind of thing I use in a Caesar salad.
1: No, obviously not.
0: Right, so that, you know that's where the anchovy is featured, and so I don't want to use anchovy paste in that. If I'm if I'm Correct. making Caesar dressing where the anchovy isn't featured, then this would be a fine alternative. But so anchovy paste to me, it just shows up. You know, I use it in meatballs, and I use it in my cabbage rolls, and I use it everywhere to kind of give me a little oomph. Uh, and it's in about depth, sauce, of, yeah, yeah, depth of flavor, right? So yeah, uh, that's yeah. that's yeah. one no, of the ones I keep it, in mind.
1: One that you've heard me mention before. Um, I have two types of harissa in my fridge. I have the fresh harissa from, uh, Villa Girada, and I have this tube harissa from the. Um, this is, um, I just, it's just because I'm scared of running out of harissa, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Dijon mustard and harissa are two items that, oh my God, if there is no more on the planet, I'm moving out.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm going with you. Oh, so,
1: harissa tube, harissa tube is, the good thing about the tube, um, it's convenient in terms of usage because when you take it, you know, harissa is not something you use but the giant spoons. You know, it's something that you, you, you use as an enhancer of flavor or as a finishing touch, you know, to, to bring a little spice in there.
0: What is it? So, what is harissa?
1: Harissa is a hot chili paste from a stew from Northern, Northern Africa between Algeria, Tunisia and uh, Morocco. And, um, very prominent in Morocco, for sure. So um, it's something that in a tube, it's something that you can just use a little dash or two in something to give a little hit and a little finishing touch. But like, for example, uh, you have a chicken noodle soup. You know, you put a little couple dash of that in there. It's beautiful. You could also use the fresh if you had it. But the problem with the fresh is if you open the jar, it doesn't last forever. Right. Uh, in the tube, in, in the paste shape, it doesn't go bad. You know, I've never, never had anything in the tube that went bad.
0: Right, because just, you keep it, it, rolling, like a toothpaste, you keep rolling the end of the tube. Exactly. And then you put the lid back on, so there's never it's never oxidizing, right, because it's always almost, almost completely airtight.
1: Right, and I keep everything in the fridge like you do, um, but I love Arisa. Mm. Yeah.
0: All right, my next one is tomato paste. That's to me, is the one I use the absolute most, and I use it in gravies. I use it, of course, in tomato sauce for pasta. I use it in soups, uh, I use it in meatballs, I use it everywhere. And again, instead of opening a can and then having half a can and wondering what to do with it, uh, by ha- buying it in the tube, you can just use it up all the way as, as it goes naturally and just keep that lid on and keep it from oxidizing. Okay, Chef, what is one that uh, maybe you haven't had in the fridge before that you'd like to try, that you've seen in the marketplace? Because I have a couple you, of those right you, now.
1: You were mentioning the the ginger paste. I've never seen it. So I would be definitely curious to try that. Um, you have you said you have ginger ginger mm-hmm, paste, right? Mm-hmm.
0: And wasabi. I've,
1: yeah, I've seen wasabi. Actually, I have wasabi, <clears throat> but I've never had the ginger paste. And I would I would be curious to try that because ginger is one of those items that is extremely pungent. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how it transfers into a paste into a into a tube. So that would you know, be that would be I would be curious to try it.
0: Jackie bought some of those little frozen ginger cubes in the freezer department uh, for the farm, and she's been using right. those and really likes them. So that's another way. They're in like little ice, mini ice cube trays, and you just pop out right. as many as you need. I made ginger fried rice with those the other night. Okay, here's one that I have today that kind of grosses people out, and this one happens to be salmon pate in a tube. And they also make liverwurst and a few other ones. If you go to German delis, this is from the Scandinavian deli in Ballard. And here's the thing: I just put it. I've never had it before. I had a little rye crisp with it. how Appropriate, and it's actually pretty good. I'm actually surprised. I wouldn't. You know, I thought to myself, well, maybe I would use this as an alternative to to uh, anchovy paste. Right? Oh yeah. But it's not like that at all. Anchovy paste is much stronger, more pungent. This is really lightened. Uh, much much better than I was thinking it was going to be. So, uh, here's salmon spread uh, in a tube, and it's all right. I'm I'm alive and well after trying. It, so. <laughs> <laughs> now the mustard. That's and, always a... the tube of mustard. I I uh, it's good. It's a little bit sweet, but it's just about having a variety of different mustards. I have so many jars of mustard in my fridge, and I know Pamela is a mustard freak. Uh, we'll have to get Pamela on and talk about your. Your, your life and skills, Pamela, since you're going to be producing the show for a while, people need to know who you are and what you like. There, You have some uh, you have some real quirks.
2: Be still my heart. Sure. Uh, I want to go deep on mustard. All right. Let's do mustard
0: next week with you. Yes. And then we'll get learn more about you. Okay. Hello, M. Drawing fans in the International District, a new pastry and coffee shop on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Kitchen on Cairo Radio. It's our weekly show, two hours long. You can catch us uh, live on Saturdays and Sundays uh, from 4 to 6 on Saturdays and from, I believe, 4 to 6 on Sundays, too, uh, here on Cairo Radio. My name's Tom Douglas. I'm joined by the chef in the chapeau.
1: I'm Terry Rochereau, the chef in a hat. Yes, Tom, always a pleasure.
0: Always a pleasure. You know, Terry, there's a new uh, uh, roastery, kind of a pastry shop opened by your it's not really by your house, but it's near your, nearer your home than I have, mine. I
1: have, I have been and I have tried, uh, not, not gone inside because I'm not going inside anything, but um, I've drove by and my uh, daughter-in-law and my son brought me the uh, Egg Cloud American Coffee. And the, oh, maybe it's called something else, but the Egg Cloud Coffee. Mm-hmm. That was delicious. And those beautiful little pastries that they make there. Oh, my Lovely. God. Well,
0: we, so uh, we know you're a fan, so we called uh, Yun V and asked her to come on and tell us about the new shop called Hello M with the mission of roasting her own coffee beans so that they're just right for Vietnamese style coffees. Hi, MV. Hi,
1: MV. Hello. Good morning. Good morning.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I miss Thanks you at so the hi, soup shop.
3: I know. I like the coffee shop. is the new baby. So I'm mm-hmm. here a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but thank you for having me, guys.
0: Absolutely. Tell us about your mission and tell us about uh, your favorite parts of owning a coffee business.
3: So much easier than a restaurant, guys. <laughs> is it? <laughs> <laughs> it is like so. It's like so much. It's a hobby, basically. Well, mm-hmm. actually, it first started. I didn't actually want to do it. Um, so we are in the Little Saigon Creative Space, which is funded by the nonprofit <sighs> in Little Saigon, Seattle. Um, It's called Federal Little Saigon, and um, we are in like we need a physical space for the community and to do programming, and for small business support. And um, we got um, funding from the city and grants to build our space. And I'm on the board. I've been on the board for about seven years. but it kicking me out because now it's a conflict of interest. Because I opened a coffee shop inside the creative space, and it's called Hello Am. So Am means. A variety of things in Vietnamese. It means like little brother, little sister or little lover. And so uh. it's a term endearment. Yes, I know, right? <laughs> it's a term endearment and it's kinda like of Gitlit, like Vietnamese English. And then that's the first thing I say to my, you know, employees when I walk in and to my customers and when they walk into the coffee shop it feels like home. And uh it's just so much fun. Like, um I'm super controlling. I think I don't know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like <laughs> um, when I like first see this idea of a a coffee shop, I mean, it's such a big coffee shop. I was looking for coffee beans from around the United States and and roasters, and I just like I just wasn't like satisfied. I'm like I think I could do this, <laughs> and so I'm like oh how hard could it be? And then I'm like all right. And then um thank God I have friends in the industry, mm-hmm. and I talked to Connor from Dorothea um, Coffee. Um, he's a really good friend of mine, and he really consulted me through the whole process. And then I was like I need beans, like. Like, how hard could it be to get beans from Vietnam? <laughs> and so um, right before the pandemic, I flew to Vietnam and um, hand-selected my beans. Fortunately, I had my business partner, a really good family friend of mine. Um, his family has been in the coffee coffee industry for generations now, and um, they really helped us curate um, for Busta Beans, single-origin Busta Beans in Tumantua, which is Central Highlands, and then Araxa Beans, from, like, closer to the border of Laos. Mm-hmm. And, um, from there, it was just like this crazy whirlwind of trying to be an importer. <laughs> like it was so insane because there's no like handbook for this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, getting everything approved, customs, FDA in the midst of the pandemic and then getting a shop roaster from, um, Germany and that's been really, really fun. So it's an air roaster. And so it's a completely controlled environment for the beans. And, um, it's an extremely like, it was extremely fun just, just testing out. Different temperatures and different um, timing, and trying to get the right roast for the Vietnamese specialty coffee, and then something lighter because, like, I'm a black coffee drinker. Mm-hmm. Um, I like my I like my espresso. Like the beans to just hold on its own. You don't need anything to like mask it or just elevate it. It's just be amazing on its own. So that was one of my um, reasons why I started to wanted to do it myself because I was so particular to how I want my black coffee. <laughs>
0: so let me ask you this then. Let me ask yeah. you this question. Yeah. You know what? Uh, you know, I never got started drinking Vietnamese coffee until I started eating Vietnamese uh, pho. Right, so yeah. uh, just always one went with the other, and you know, with con- condensed milk and the little pot that kind of self brews at the table. And um, mm-hmm. is that really? I mean, I understood that your intention was to make that a better product. Is that is that really? You know what I'm saying? Is like. Are you still there, or have you moved on and elevated completely beyond that little self-dripper?
3: Yeah, the self-dripper is great. Like, I love the scene; It's called a scene. Um, like, that is a very, like, traditional Vietnamese way to make coffee. It's cheap. It's affordable. Any restaurant can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can make it at home. But, like, um, because I, I was born and raised in Seattle, and it has this crazy coffee culture here, like, I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> love it. And the thing that's so cool about the Vietnamese coffee games is us is that, um, when you pull on a express machine, you get so much power, you get so much depth that you can't get in the theme filter. Like, you know, this is why we roast so dark, because, um, in Vietnam, we have the robusta, that's like a problem with, um, being like 95% of the industry is robusta beans, 45% robusta. Mm-hmm. And so, but robusta beans, you wasn't so light, it means not taste like much, it's, it's more for the chocolate notes, the deep notes, and it can hold well against conventional notes. Like, um, other coffee shops, are just people that try to blend vegetables with a lighter medium roast or a different beans. like kind of falls flat, like really means layer profile. Everything has to be very well rounded. It has to coat your mouth like NXT. It has to, um, like give you that punch. You know, that's how, that's the way you have like to drink it. <laughs> so with like, pulling the robust beans through the espresso, it just gives us this extra depth of crema and this extra like level of like almost like a, Chocolatey, caramelly, almost durian, aromatic mm-hmm.
0: to it. I'm so, I'm so, so happy so to delicious. hear you say that you roast it that dark because I tend to be one of those. You know, I grew up on the Starbucks uh, flavor profile, hey. which you know people always called charbucks uh, that are super <laughs> super coffee hipsters, but because they like a lighter roast. But I'm in the yeah. darker. Chef Terry, uh, how was how your roast flavor? Your palate. I'm,
1: I'm a I'm a lighter roast. I'm a I'm a blonde mm-hmm. bean kind of. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't like when it's coated with oil on the outside yeah. and dark and mm-hmm. um you know to that roasting I'm not I'm not quite that far I like to, I like to be below that mm-hmm. before that yeah. so
0: and and I'm probably
1: I'm probably in I'm probably near uh, 8 to 9 minutes as opposed to 12 minutes <laughs>
3: right <laughs> you know actually the robustity is at 24 minutes at a really low temperature wow that's <laughs> impressive that's a uh, time. okay okay yeah but it doesn't get oily that's a cool part. Like it's not a true. You know, either.
1: yeah. When I was in when I was in Vietnam, I went to Vietnam once. I was lucky to go there and uh, traveled from top to bottom. Um, mm-hmm. And coffee is definitely um, a different, complete different flavor than what we get here. For some reason, it's like it's a very different flavor in terms of the the depths of the coffee, and also the some of it was very. It felt pedestrian in some ways. I don't know where they get the beans or what they do. <laughs> but it seems, it seems like your coffee was, I had the cloud one, that was delicious. Yeah, um, that well, was actually, that's a, that's you know, a different
3: rose. Yeah, what you had what? here was the, that's the am roast. So we had two rose here, and then am, and it's 100% robusta. But what you had was the eight cloud Americano. That was actually a blend of Vietnamese Arabica, Ethiopian heirloom, and Wahhaban Berber, um, Arabica uh, bean. Yeah, and so that's wow. why it was like that's that's like my favorite. Like I love it, like your exact flavor profile is for like the more the like, bigger black and then more on the lighter side and really aromatic. And then the Vietnamese robusta is for like the deep caramel like hitting your face kind
1: mm-hmm. of
3: rose. Yeah. yeah. It, it makes a, it makes a good it <laughs> makes a
1: good cup. It makes a good cup for sure. And that with the yeah. mochi mango, oh
3: Oh yeah, you love the mochi Mega, the mochi clouds. Everything is a cloud here. <laughs> I know exactly.
0: Yeah, I know. We, we only have a, we, we only have a minute, Yumvi. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what yeah. else you're serving there at the, at the Hello M.
3: Oh, oh yeah, Hello M. Well, I do a lot of button So I did, I got a free panini press with my, um, my espresso machine. and <laughs> so I like, so I started to do pressed bunnies. And so we do like Vietnamese style, um, breakfast. And then we have, because we're in Seattle, we have to do a hot dog version. And of course, if we're in Seattle yeah, again, I have a pepper smoked salmon version. Um, toasted for the vegetarians, and so we have a bunch of meats, too. It's hmm. always really
0: fun.
4: fun.
3: Yeah,
0: can't wait to get there and uh, see your smiling face. Uh, you're one of the great yeah,
3: come back. one of the great uh, <laughs> hosts
0: in Seattle. Oh,
3: right, thank you. It's an honor.
0: Yeah, and if you want to check out uh, uh, Yanvi's other sh- store, I go to the Sup Shop S U P. There, uh, right next to the original Fabak, which was the. Uh, what we called a Chinese junk. Is that right? What that was kind of shaped after? Oh, the boat. The boat. Fishing boat. Yeah. <laughs> it's so not it's not a after a Chinese yeah. junk?
3: No, it's actually part of a float that we had during the Catholic Vietnamese Marian day. <laughs> 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 that they stuck on to the end of the building and uh-huh. it fit
0: perfectly. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. Get out there and check out Hello M. Uh, You're going to have to battle some lines, I hear. So uh, no, be patient. No, no,
3: it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> be patient. And
0: get because. down there and try it out. Thank you, Yumby.
3: Thank you. Have a great thank day, you guys. you so much. You Good happy. luck. Bye-bye. Well, thank
0: you. Bye. Uh, up next, it's time to make a difference in the environmental protection of our food choices. Pamela is going to tell us a little bit about that when we come back. It's the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio 973FM. Hey, welcome back. I'm Tom Douglas, and it's uh, coming up on Earth Day. Uh, My partner, Chef in the Chapeau, is uh, two feet from me on this earth.
1: (laughs) I'm two feet from you, but I'm actually many more feet than that.
0: (laughs) Uh, Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society radio show. And Pamela, our producer, uh, this topic is near and dear to you, as it should be to everyone, honestly, but uh, you follow it very closely. Tell us about... uh, Uh, celebrating Earth Day and fighting climate change with our diet choices.
2: It is close to me because, and this is going to tip to my age, Earth Day was celebrated first in 1970, so that was in the height of my activism period when we were (laughs) burning our bras and, you know, protesting the Vietnam War in the street. And it celebrated, Earth Day celebrated its 50th anniversary last year and has a big celebration this year for Thursday the 22nd. The reason I wanted to talk about it with the two of you is because chef input for people on how to change their diet is going to be helpful in moving people towards implementing a more plant-friendly intake. I think uh, the concept of climate change is so gigantic and scientific that many individuals shirk away feeling that they cannot participate or contribute on an individual basis. But there are so many things each of us can do uh, to make a difference. And primarily in your diet, um, that means moving away from large industrial beef production because the toll that that style of agriculture takes on our planet is enormous, both from a land basis, a water basis, deforestation, and it takes up way more space than it contributes in nutritional calories. So if we could all make a commitment to getting Our beef intake, and a lot of people think I'm a vegetarian, but I'll chew on a lamb chop with great (laughs) happiness. (laughs) Uh, If we can all get it down, many nutritionists say your animal protein should be five ounces a week or less, and that is hard. Mm -hmm. So you have got to get flavor from other sources and other umami-satisfying dishes, This week, uh, I mean, for Earth Day, this upcoming week at the warehouse, we're going to do a black bean burger to prove that you can make a patty and something in a bun that's crunchy and delicious with a non-meat product um, as a good example. But I wanted to talk to you both about how you balance your plates and get more vegetables on and, and how much meat you eat. Terry, let's start with you. What What are you doing about all this?
1: Well, I'm, I mean, for me personally, um, let's talk about me personally first. Um, I can't eat a meal with just protein on the plate. That doesn't work for me. I'm, I'm a big fan of um, having a balanced meal. I, I can't. For the last six months, I've been eating a salad at every meal, lunch and dinner, um, mainly because my wife and I both love salads. So, you know, if I have an entree, the entree will have vegetables, will have protein, uh, let's say uh, a chicken, carrots, onion. Um, try not to eat potatoes on every meal because starch are good, but they're only so good on your hips. You know, and, and you try to balance everything in proportions. You try not to eat the whole, you know, we take one whole chicken between two people and make four or five meals out of it. You know, we don't, you know, one breast of chicken will be an entire lunch with salads and everything. For the both of us, you know, and and that's how we, that's how we participate. It's not, and to me, it's not, I'm not participating in, in making the planet better. I just think it's a a matter of logic. If you want to live, you know, a a good life or a longer life, possibly a longer life, but, and, and a good, healthy life. And also, it's more fun to eat a plate that has five different things on it versus just one big giant thing.
2: You bring up a good point with the chicken, too, because by using it for multiple meals, you're doing the other critical thing uh, for planet health is you're reducing waste because you're using it Correct. multiple times in multiple ways. So that's super and big, smart. And big,
1: just to give you an idea, we keep all the bones. We know we take a whole chicken, keep all the bones. We make stock with the bones. We even keep the bones of the uh, the legs and everything that we've eaten. You know, it's like. We put everything, it's, it's all on stock. I wouldn't do that in the restaurant, obviously. I'm not going to keep, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wouldn't do that in the restaurant situation. But at home, it's my own, my own bone, my own stock, and we keep everything. We put everything in the freezer. We have a container in the freezer just for bones, and then we make stocks. Like We keep the stem parsley, the, the peeling of carrots, if we're going to peel carrots or whatever, and then we put everything in one big pot when we're making something else, and we have a great stock. And having chicken stock on hand or, or any kind of stock, vegetable stock or whatever, is a great thing. You know, it's like it, it's a it's a layer of flavor. Then you start, you're a step ahead when you start your recipe.
2: Excellent. So, We're going to dig in on stock in, in just a little bit. Tom, do you want to weigh in on your plant-based initiatives at your house?
0: I, I look at it as a little bit broader picture. You know, I love vegetables. I love all that. I love a good steak. As you know, you had dinner at my house the other night. I, Uh, I love a beautiful piece of grilled salmon. Uh, I tend to probably eat more than five ounces a week. I I try to limit it to five ounces a night. (laughs) (laughs) But but I also think that uh, hand in hand with that, that I do a better job than most on uh, how I try to protect the earth in in different ways right i'm a good recycler much better than my wife who's the gardener in our in our house but i'm a good recycler i'm a good you know i try to make sure we follow sustainable practices when we buy the fish and you know i I try to be aware of the earth day is more than just what's on my plate but is 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 in a lifestyle so that would be my answer to that
2: the other piece to the lifestyle is um being cognizant of the seasons and shopping locally. Uh, if you're fortunate enough to have a good farmer's market in your neighborhood uh, and, you, and you get to know your produce guy at the grocery store, staying in touch with the seasons is the result of a lower energy use on getting the foods to us. There's a, a dramatic Uh, element of the environmental movement that wants to boycott all air freighted food Mm -hmm. because of the impact that that has on emissions Uh, that seems extreme but i know that what we can all do is shop closer and more locally and and actually take a look at
0: it see where the product you know you're buying uh, organic harvest butter or or milk Look where it's coming from. It's being on a truck from Colorado or someplace like that. So you have to be aware of all the way down the path. Um, The other thing I would say is that everyone can make a difference. A small little bit on everyone's part uh, can make a big difference. So I would go with
1: that. You don't have to move the earth, no pun intended, but you definitely (laughs) can make a difference by making very little moves. Take care of your recycling. Take care of – make sure you compost. Make sure you – all those different little things. You don't have to do all of them. If you do one, you're making a step forward. You're
0: helping. Use your voice also. Yeah. I was at my yeah. at my very well-known grocery store uh, this week, and I was trying to buy local asparagus, and that produce department could give a damn of whether they had Mexican, Californian, or Washington asparagus. They just couldn't care less, and that was yeah. very disappointing because uh, these guys are a good store. I've been shopping there for 40 years, and they just could care less. And I... Uh, I said something about it, and I just think that that'll make them think when the guy's buying produce next. It'll make yeah. them think, what a jerk I am. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, we got another whole hour for you. It's going to be fun here in the Hot Stove Kitchen on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Here we are. We're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen at the Hot Stove Radio Show, 97.3 FM on Cairo. I'm Tom Douglas.
1: And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat.
0: And chef, uh, we've got another whole hour here. we got so much going on, it's hard to keep track. Isn't, uh, if you were listening to our first hour, isn't uh, Yen v just the sweetest uh, from. Uh, oh, she's a kick. Yeah, hello, M coffee, and pastry. She's a real sweetheart. Uh, In this next hour, salt in its many forms. Uh, We're going to take a look at there, and Pamela's going to help us uh, through what she has brought for us to kind of taste, or at least me anyway. Chef, sorry you're in Madison Valley. Uh, It's okay. I got my own. uh, We're going to talk about our love for deeply flavored beef and chicken broth and stock. Uh, We're going to do some gluten-free desserts with uh, pastry chef Stacy Fortner from the Dahlia Workshop. And lastly, it's time for our Rub With Love Tasty Trivia Challenge, uh, which I, f- I believe, I'm not sure who we're playing with. Stacy's going to stay. Oh, Stacey's going so, to stay.
1: Oh, Stacy's going to stay. Oh, my yeah.
0: God. We might be in trouble. I was about
1: to say, I feel really good today. Now I'm yeah. going to hold on my tongue and uh, wait till we get to that.
0: Yeah, I feel like we're, we might be in trouble. Uh, anyway, let's get running <laughs> down the road of salt here. And so, Pamela, tell us about what you've brought and why you brought it and what you want to... What you want to end up with at the end of this segment? How what do, what do our listeners need to learn?
2: The different ways and different textures of the granular, common table salt versus the gorgeous, flaky, multi-pronged sea salts. Okay, um, and then how to use them to have the most. Impact because it's a powerful ingredient and really above and beyond its antibacterial and preservative natures. In food, it also, uh, depending on when you add it, it changes how your food reacts. So I'd like to hear you talk about it with me. And I know you've been in an epic battle with Bridget on pasta waters. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: Uh, I'll just start here, and it's a little bit like olive oil. Uh, I'll start with the price. So a lot of times people are intimidated by the price. Now, you can go out and get a – none of us, I'll just say, and I'll be snobby about it, none of us use table salt, that kind of iodized salt in the kitchen. That that just doesn't happen in any chef's kitchen. Uh, So we all – we start with – not even in your house, right? We start with kosher salt uh, because that has a nice green quality to it and – Uh, You can feel it in your fingers so you kind of have a better feel for how much you're putting in, blah, blah, blah. Now, let's talk price. I'm going to jump into the price point, Sherry, and then you can talk about usage. Uh, Price point, a a five-pound or three-pound box, this is uh, a a, a couple-and-a-half-pound box, three-pound box of kosher salt is about five bucks, maybe six, depending on which grocery store you're shopping at. This little jar of uh, Malden Flake salt is uh, a half an ounce, and it's about eight ninety nine, And so uh, people just say, well, I'm not going to spend the money on the Malden because that's a ridiculous price. They're both salt. They're both sea salt. Um, why should I buy the Malden? So then you have to kind of look at it and say, okay, let's put on the table. Let's put on my counter how much, uh, let's say I'm making a steak, Uh, how much of the kosher salt is going to go on my counter and how much of the flake salt is going to go on my counter. Let's weigh it, all right? So now I've got one penny's worth of kosher salt and I've got two cents worth of flake salt. But I didn't want to buy the flake salt because it was too expensive. And people forget, they, they they price with their eyes and they forget that when you amortize the actual weight and price per ounce per gram... It's barely any difference. It's two cents compared to one cent. Uh, and you so, also
1: use very little. It's not like that's, you what, that's, use... what,
0: that's what I'm saying. You're only using a tiny right. bit. So go ahead and spend the money on the interesting, more uh, interesting salt. Okay, Terry, how would you use, like uh, compared to kosher salt to the flake salt, when would you use those two things?
1: So kosher salt I use for may, uh, what I call the, the mainstream usage putting in water, if I'm going to, let's say, blend some vegetable, I'm going to put a little salt in my water. I put I put the kosher salt in there. If I'm going to cure some salmon or some duck, I'm going to use that for that. If I do, you know, for that for that massive amount of salt that I need, I'm going to use that for that. Break down for uh, a spice rub for a barbecue, I'm going to use that too. Um, you know, for, for things like that. Now, for finishing, I'm going to use the other one that you were talking about, like the Maldon Flake. You know, Maldon Flake, uh, to me, it's a, it's a beautiful salt because, the, first of all, the texture in your mouth of the flakes is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it really serves its purpose of the flake actually breaks down as you eat, the, for example, raw salmon. You, you have some beautiful salmon. You're making a, a platter of raw salmon sliced, a little bit of olive oil, and you put a little bit of Maldon Flake on that. It is sensational what the salt difference is when you do that. Versus, for example, if you only have iodine salt, that would be ridiculous. Or
0: even kosher yeah. salt is not really a good spot yeah, for that. Salt, yeah, kosher salt. Yeah,
1: that's where that's where you come up with the usage of that. And um, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think I recommend people to try different type of salt. I mean, there are plenty of very rocky salt, finishing salt. There is flaky salt. There is pink salt. There is black salt. There is, you know, there's all kind of different flavors. Smoke salt. Um, in my cupboard, I have grey salt, which is um, so you know like from what they call it from Brittany, mm-hmm. um, you know, in France. Because when I when I grew up, we had a big giant one quart jar in the kitchen cupboard of the grey salt that my mom would buy. So you buy it in a plastic bag, you put it in the jar, and she would use that for all boiling water kind of pots. Like I would use kosher kosher salt here. That's what she would use. Because mm-hmm. and uh, use the white. Beautiful uh, finishing salt for finishing, you know that's why it's called a finishing salt.
0: Well, let's uh, let's you know what I'm, t- Pamela. Let's table the br- uh, the beef and chicken broth till next week, and I want to finish. I want to do another segment to finish up on all these flavored salts that you. Oh, brought. I would
2: love that because I was wondering if chefs thought that they were worthy. Right, because like
0: a fennel finishing salt or, you know, these are all things you can make oh, yeah. yourself or you can buy in the market, truffle salt, all, all sorts of things. But let's go ahead and we'll bump uh, our stocks until next week and come back and deal with salt, uh, the flavored ones right. that you can buy. Okay, so we've, we've got out of the way uh, kosher salt. We understand that now and its flavor profile. Mm-hmm. And try all these things by themselves. We've got out of the way kind of the big, fancy Malden flake salt, which actually gives you a texture in your mouth that is part of a, of a profile of a dish, right? You might have Correct. cream spinach, but with that crunchy salt on top, you get that little crunch with your cream spinach. When we come back, there's a company out of uh, Portland called Jacobson. They make all kinds of flavored mm-hmm. salts. and uh, I've actually been there and watched their process. They go deep water into the sea and, and get uh, really deep, cold ocean water. That's what I want to hear about. Uh, we've got turmeric salt, pink Hawaiian salt, and one of my favorites recently, this red boat salt, which is salt with a uh, fish sauce in it, uh, I've been using that a bit to try that out. Is it worth it? Is it? Are you better just using salt and then fish sauce, or do you need to buy the salt that's already infused with fish sauce? So let's talk about that on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, uh, 97.3 FM. Okay, we're back in the kitchen. It's the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo. Uh, my name is Tom Douglas.
1: And I'm Terry Roth. You're the chef in the hat.
0: Terry's got the brand-new Luke patio, covered patio, open this week with all this so beautiful exciting. sunshine. Yep. So exciting. And, of course, uh, you can sit outside in front of my joint, Seatown uh, Market Diner down there in the Pike north end of the Pike Place Market area. Uh, you know, I got reprimanded for saying in the Pike Place Market I'm not allowed to say that. So, uh, I, I've tried to be careful about it, but here I am back. I just almost said it again. Pamela, let's finish. Uh, let's continue and, and finish our salt conversation. Uh, if you are here for the last segment, we talked about the difference between kosher salt and salt flakes like Malden salt. And is it worth buying the, uh, even though it's ten times more expensive to buy the Malden salt, it's still, but for the amount you use on each portion, it's pennies. And so uh, get over the price point and use it uh, the way you might... Uh, choose to use an herb or a spice you know that's that's what it's adding to the flavor profiles so pamela you brought some more salts here for us to try flavored salts and so why why did you bring all these flavored salts
2: because i'm trying to determine if they are faster and easier providing a better result in your cooking to have uh, some flavor components already built in or if you need to do the work of adding your fennel and turmeric separately, they look really beautiful, and I'm curious. So, chef, do you have an opinion on this?
1: Yes, um, of course I do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you're talking to you're talking to me. <laughs> no, my my opinion on this is uh, yes, Pam. I think there is different usage for everything. Using turmeric and using uh, fennel in your food is different than finishing salt. That has turmeric and fennel mm. in it, mainly because, um, to me, the finishings—I call them finishing salt because that's what they are—they are, they are a finishing touch on your dish, and it's going to bring, parallelly, it's going to bring a flavor and a and a, a flavor profile that wasn't there before, obviously by the salt and the fennel, and also a texture because those finishing salt are very rocky or more flaky or more, Crunch, you know. So crunchy, you get two yeah. different things, two different things added to your. Uh, a dish at the end. Now, these to not get confused. If you have a, a fennel curry uh, chicken, you're not going to use that salt to flavor your chicken for the fennel. That's, this is where the confusion needs right. to mm-hmm. go away. This is a finishing salt where you want that little hint of fennel. You know that beautiful sweetness and fennel brings into your to your mouth. It's going to be present, but it's not going to be the main dish. Right. So,
0: so, Chef, if that? I could paraphrase that, what I'm hearing you say is that as a chef, we want to bring, if we're making, let's say, fennel risotto, right? We right, want right. to make a fennel stock, right, from all the stalks. We want Correct. to make uh, maybe caramelized fennel to stir into the risotto, and then we right. might want to finish with our fennel salt and maybe some fennel pollen. And now we've Correct. got four different layers of fennel flavor in our risotto, and that's what makes you a different cook than maybe the home cook,
1: Correct. And that's, uh, again, keep it in balance. And then you'll have this wonderful, you know, there is nothing wrong with adding fennel on fennel if you can distinguish it, you know, in a different stage. So right. Because cooked fennel, it, fennel tastes it's different it's, than raw fennel. Correct. Yeah. And, and fennel salt is different than any of the above. So mm-hmm. you, and by doing the fennel salt, you're now seasoning as well as enhancing the flavor and, again, bringing another texture. So it's something that people need to work on. And, and again, I know that it's one of those items where people go, what, 20 bucks for this little jar of salt? And like Tom refers to all the time, you don't use a lot. That jar will last you because you use it as a finishing touch, just like you would caviar. You don't use caviar to make a fish soup. You use caviar to put at the end of your dish to be a, a component of itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's the same with salt, with finishing salt
0: well i've been uh, we're working on a little thing called um pizza dust right now for crust uh, uh, you know for our, our we're, we have a kit coming out with our serious pie dough sauce and pizza spice and I was trying to figure out how to get we use Murray River salt on our serious uh-huh. pie, which is when I called to find out a a twenty pound case of Murray River salt is almost three hundred dollars. Compared oh, yeah, to no, a, I believe it. compared to a twenty pound case of kosher salt, which is like fifteen dollars, <laughs>
2: <laughs> so it's like yeah. it's, it's funny how
0: when you start to get into big manufacturing situations, the numbers get super real real quick.
2: That's what I wanted to talk about when I started to do my salt research. They are breaking down the manufacturers by industrial versus craft, and the granular, right. inexpensive table salt is made. Big machines, Mm -hmm. you know, high-pressure water under the earth into salt deposits, whereas all the beautiful flake salts are a slow evaporation process. Mm -hmm. And uh, you got to see it, I guess, at Jacobson. Right,
0: down there. When he first started, uh, we had him here at the hot stove a few times, but even before then, at summer camp, we had him over at the ballroom. Uh, When he first started, he had a – well, first he would go out in boats and drop – kettles down to get water off the closer to the bottom, the more pristine water, I guess. And then he uh, got permits to install a pipe into the ocean to grab water, uh, a temporary pipe. Um, And then he would actually evaporate it down in his shop in Portland and uh, he ended up with the, the salt crystals. And what I like about the Jacobson salt, you know, some of the flavors, they have crazy flavors like chili lime and ghost chili pepper and smoked salt. I use those literally as a finishing salt to add those flavors uh, at the end. Right. Like, uh, There's a new hot one out, the Red Boat uh, uh, fish sauce salt. They call it the essence of umami. To me, this doesn't uh, – the, the I don't love this salt. I've used it twice now, and – um, it just doesn't bring the fish sauce, that, the essence that I want it to bring. I, I would prefer to just pour on a little fish sauce and salt separately. Um, the mm. other one here, you brought Pamela, that's very popular out there, is the Himalayan salt. You see a lot of that Himalayan pink salt. Doesn't do much for me. It's fine, but it doesn't do much for me. Chef, do you have a favorite there one is of a, these?
1: Well, I like the Hawaiian black lava salt. They call it the black lava salt. Mm-hmm. Um, again... Very different in texture and definitely different in flavor. It's got almost like a earthiness to it, like a almost like a smokiness to it, kind of idea because it's been actually smoked, and um, it's got it's got a completely different flavor profile in some ways. So you put that on on finishing, uh, let's say a steak. You know, you have a steak and you put some black lava salt on it. You definitely create a different level of flavor, hmm. and definitely, obviously, the texture is you know they're really hard and rocky those those salt mm-hmm. so they definitely have a different texture but the flavor is definitely changed by the time you have your steak i like so that that's, salt
0: for uh, for garnishing purposes on something that where it really shows up i think it's pretty yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no absolutely oh well, yeah it's it's you know, if you have a white cream soup and you put some black lava salt I know. in
0: obviously. It's, it's dynamic. Pamela, did we answer all your questions, or is there anything before? We
2: only have a minute left. I wanted to hear who won the salted pasta water battle. Does the salt go in? <laughs> when does it go in?
0: Uh, I don't mind a little bit, but Bridget uses a handful of salt, and uh, she and I just disagree, and I won the battle, right, Terry? We did it here on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won the battle. Her pasta was much too salty, and we always talk about in in baking and in the kitchens about using unsalted butter so that you can control the salt uh, in your cake and in your pastries and in your dishes, right? And so it doesn't make sense to me to make this super salty pasta water and your pasta's in there soaking it all up and now if it gets too salty, you can't control it. It's done. Right? Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. There's nothing you can do. So Go uh, light, go light. To me I would go light on the salted. I get it she wants to, it's tradition, blah blah blah. But if you add the salt later it's perfectly fine. Thank you. <laughs> Problem solved. And good thing she's not here. Because she wanted it. to argue about it still. You would be <laughs> arguing again. I know, exactly. Up next, uh, Stacy Fortner, the pastry chef at the Dahlia Workshop, is going to join us. And we're going to have a little baker's corner on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. And we're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen right here on Cairo Radio. Uh, our producer today is Pamela. Hinkley. She is our new producer for a while as she uh, invents the new Hot Stove Society uh, kitchen and uh, school. And then, uh, you know, we have a sit-in for Sean today. Brandon's here. You might remember Brandon from last spring when we first started going virtual and also uh, using the production foundry or factory for our audio-video so uh, Brandon's sitting in today for Sean, who's not feeling good today, or is whatever, wherever he is.
2: It's um, awfully sunny out. It's so. awfully sunny out.
0: <laughs> We've asked Stacy Fortner, our pastry chef at the uh, Dahlia Workshop, which is the pastry kitchen out at our warehouse facility in Ballard, uh, to come on and uh, join us to tell us about some gluten-free desserts for spring. Hi, Stacy. Hi, Chef. Good morning, Stacey. Um, tell, us, tell us about gluten-free desserts and uh, what are some of the, the troublesome parts of getting the right textures? Because we know that without the gluten, you don't end up with that same kind of structure. Uh, so tell us what you, some of your tricks are.
4: That's right. Uh, so the hardest part about you know, gluten-free is, like you said, getting the right structure. So what I, what I would recommend for people baking at home is to really go the route more of like a cake or a pastry What is hard to do is try to, for instance, make gluten-free bread. So I think if you focus more on, like, um, you know, the pastry side of things, then you're going to have a lot better results. And the nice thing with gluten-free flours is there's not only so many on the market now that are pre-mixed for you, but you can also put your own together. And so I've kind of got a lot of fun ideas for baking with your own gluten-free flours today, too. All right, let's do it. Well, um, so, for example, I like to talk a little bit about the Cup for Cup uh, designed by Thomas Keller. That's one of our favorite ones that we like to use because you can not only interchange it equally cup for cup, as the name indicates, but also by weight. So, if you have something that calls for a pound of flour, you can just weigh out a pound, and you don't have to do any other exchanges for that.
1: That's convenient.
4: Um, one. It is. Yeah. And it uh, like I said, it works for all your pastry needs. They've even developed a couple extra lines for like pizza dough and uh, pie dough, things you want to be a little more specific and that are harder to get that uh, gluten structure in there. So they have a couple things to help you there. Bob's is another uh, readily, probably more readily available at your local supermarkets. But for me, uh, when I'm not using the cup for cups, I like to mix my own. So a couple of ideas that we have that we use in the kitchen. I uh, just want to remind people about coconut flour, for example. What I really like about coconut is it stays super moist when you're making cakes or muffins out of it. And again, you don't have to add anything weird. It's just naturally gluten-free.
0: And it stays moist. I mean, it literally just has a moisture structure to it, a moisture c- content to it.
4: Right, because of the co- just because of the coconut itself, mm-hmm. it kind of holds the uh, holds the moisture. The flour itself is a little a little more moist than some of the other ones. For instance, a lot of times you'll see cornstarch as a uh, ingredient in a gluten free flour, which is good and it keeps a nice structure on your cake, but it can leave a slight aftertaste. So for me, I like to use more of like a ground nut flour, or even we take our own oats. And we grind them up until it becomes just a fine powder. And then we use that for an oat flour. That one I like to mix with, say, like an almond or a hazelnut. And then you kind of have a really nice blend. Maybe throw in a little buckwheat into there. And then it kind of gives you, like, a well-rounded flour structure mm-hmm. and flavor. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the almond flour. Um, I think it's a very uh, tasty flour for me.
4: That one? For me, I even prefer the hazelnut flour because that one even has more like you know, strong nut flavor. But the almond's nice because it really blends with everything. You know, you can you can mm-hmm. do a nice mix with that one. It kind of bulks it up and gives you like a little more structure.
0: Stacy, how important is the fat content of the flour that you're using to the recipe? So for example, I would think that uh, a hazelnut flour has a much higher fat content than, say, an oat flour does. Is it important to have that mixture so that you get to a, a premium level of fat or a, a level that's uh, that works best?
4: Uh, for me, no, because you could always add a little extra oil and, you know, butter if you aren't trying to avoid dairy. So, no, you still got, you know, your sugars also to give it that extra, like, uh, moist, moistness so i don't think it's necessary and it doesn't hurt like the coconut or the almond flowers bring some extra moisture but i don't think it's necessary uh what i would try to avoid is like for instance the cornstarch or tapioca rice flour buckwheat flour those can always be really fine textured so those can actually draw it uh, uh kind of like suck up the moisture and kind of and the oat too like as it sits that can kind of suck up the moisture in your cake so that that's why it's nice to blend those with something like the coconut or the nut flours. that has a little more moisture.
0: When you're making a tart uh, out of a gluten-free process, do you, do you change the filling, anything on your tart, to kind of make up for what's lacking in the crust, or is it so close that there's nothing lacking?
2: Well,
4: that's our goal. I mean, we like to say, you know, a lot of our things are gluten-free, but don't tell anyone because they might think it's not good uh-huh. because we want to sell it just as regular, just a regular, delicious dessert. So, to me, yeah, you shouldn't be able to really tell. The only time, like I mentioned in the, uh, the tart dough, when you get into some of, like, the garbanzo bean flour, cornstarch, tapioca, you might get a little bit of that, a little bit of an aftertaste. But I right. like to try to add extra spices to kind of, you know, disguise that a little bit, a little bit of honey in there, maybe a little cinnamon or something like that.
1: I'm with you, Stacey. I think, I think it's all about the... The flavor. And if you stay away from those harsh starch, um, you, your finishing flavor will be just as very similar to a regular tart. I mean, I've made non gluten, um, gluten free, uh, cake, you know, like citrus cake and so on and so forth. And, you know, citrus is a very nice, beautiful addition to create some beautiful layer of flavor that will be in your face kind of idea, you know, like it will be first. So, and that's a very pleasant flavor. Um, but, I've made cake where there is no starch other than gluten-free flour and ground almond. And that tastes very delicious. You know, you just have to cook it all the way, make sure it's cooked all the way, just like flour. Um, And then, you know, sweetener, you just use um, the the, uh, maple syrup or honey. And that's another layer of flavor that's created to replace sugar. So you end up with a cake that has no, no gluten, no sugar, and then no dairy because you don't have any need for that in there. So... I think it's definitely true. There is a stigma to uh, if you're trying to retail. There is definitely a stigma, and if you put gluten-free on something, then the people who are not used or knowledgeable about it are definitely going to go. Oh, I don't want to eat that. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bad so, uh, news. so It's st- actually very delicious,
0: Stacy. When it comes to things like you said, you know, bread, which is a classic. I mean, that's a tough one. Uh, I haven't had very many, uh, even decent gluten-free breads personally, but what about muffins and the things like that, that have some of bread quality, but aren't really all bread? Oh,
4: muffins are perfect. That's the perfect kind of thing that I would, I would make gluten-free. Uh, and especially with these, the gluten-free mixes. Now those go perfect, like I was saying, into, uh, equal substitutions, whether it's the bobs or the cup for cup. Um, yeah, that's something that really lends itself perfectly to doing that sort of thing. You don't have to do any experimentation. You don't have to make your own flour. Uh, I think those are lovely. And, you know, another good example, like things that are coming up this summer is we're going to have a lot of delicious rhubarb and berries. I would take the gluten-free flour and interchange it and in, say like a crisp topping. And then you can make your crisp topping gluten-free and then your berries are, you know, you just add a little butter and sugar to those. And then you always have something kind of on hand that you could throw in the freezer, have a quick gluten-free dessert. You could even make it for one if you have a guest coming over. You know, you could just have your streusel in the freezer, make a little berry crisp for one if you have somebody that can't have flour.
0: I, but I, yeah, I love that, having it's it so in nice. the freezer. You can use yeah.
4: it for everyone. In fact, I would serve it. And then, you know, ask people, like, what they thought about it, and then tell them afterwards it's gluten-free and see what (laughs) they think.
0: Exactly. And what are you using in your berries uh, on your crisp to uh, thicken those up? Is that just a regular starch?
4: Well, you know, it depends on how thick you make it. If I like to do my crisp nice and thin, that way I just put a little bit of sugar and a little butter into the berries, and I don't need to add anything else. If you're going to make it really thick, then you kind of need to add – you can add some cornstarch, which is gluten-free – and then or if your berries are like maybe extra juicy, you can uh, thicken it with a little cornstarch. But I like I think when the crisp topping is sweet enough, I like the berries to be a little tart and then just do a nice thin layer that that way the berries stay juicy and the crisp stays crisp. If you make it too thick, the filling kind of sinks in and gets a little foggy sometimes. Yeah,
0: it's it a little its, right. it's right. nasty on the palate. All right, that's Stacy Fortner. She's from the Dahlia Workshop. And, Stacy, my understanding is you're going to stay on the line and you're going to join us for the Rub With Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. Is that true?
4: That's right. I always like a good challenge, Tom.
0: All right, good. We plan on kicking <laughs> your batuti
4: Right, Bring Chef?
0: Oh, my God. Did, Terry talking, never I'm likes to trash talk. He he doesn't like to trash no. talk. He's, he's, well, he's I,
1: Because I know how it ends up.
2: <laughs> he's polite. He's, he's
4: polite. All well, right. that's, where, that's where me and Terry are different. <laughs> She's the
0: most competitive person I know, Terry. So, all right, when we come back, it's, it's uh, Tasty Trivia Time on uh, the Hot Stove Society show, Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM.
1: Ooh, it's a rub with love.
2: Ooh, writing our jingle for rub, us. Rub,
1: rub, rub
2: with love. <laughs>
0: Nice. And we're back at the Hot Stove Society Kitchen Show on Cairo Radio. Chef Terry is serenading us with a little uh, rub, a rub, rub with love. Rub
1: with love. Wow, very okay. nice,
0: Chef. Uh, that's, that's true. Rub with love. Tasty trivia brought to you by our Rub with Love product line. Handcrafted, versatile rubs, sauces, and mustards that add a flavorful kick. And a whole lot of love to just about any meat, fish, or vegetable. You can find them in your uh Butcher shops, your grocery stores, online—all uh, the all the important places have them. Oh, oh, in my cupboard! All the tasty places have them. Uh, you can <laughs> uh, you can also go to TomDouglas.com. Last resort—I mean, we have everything. We have every part of the product line here at uh, TomDouglas.com/shop. Our prize today, Pamela, in honor of Earth Day, is what, and who's going to win it?
2: It is um, three rubs. Veggie rub, which I invented. I'd just like to bring that up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Exotic (laughs) mushroom rub and our really versatile peri-peri. And to make it harder on the loser, I'm going to award two prizes because we heard from uh, two listeners with great enthusiasm Cher, who told us, who gave us some great tips going back to our hoisin segment on how to use it on meatloaf and pork chops, and I'm excited to try both of those. And then Chris, who wrote about uh, leeks and planting more leeks in his garden. So they are going to be the lucky recipients. Nice. Yeah.
0: So yeah, the loser has to pay for two shipments. Yeah. That could be wow. almost $15, Stacey, so you better be quick <laughs>
4: Wow.
2: <laughs> Should we jump right in? Yes. We've got the three contestants. Yeah. Yeah, let's tell the rules. I'm
4: ready to win.
2: We have three contestants Tom, Terry, and Stacy. I've got five questions for each. And the person who is not successful in getting the most right is the loser. Ready to go, Terry. Do you like to go first?
1: Yes. Please uh, go ahead.
2: Are th- question one Are almonds a seed or a nut? A nut. They're a seed. More specifically, they're the seeds of the almond fruit, which grow on a tree and very similar to a peach, botanically speaking. Number two. Is it true carrots can turn your skin orange if you eat many of them?
1: It, yes, it's true if you eat a lot. Yes. it contains car- carotid.
2: Exactly. It's a phenomena that they've discovered and, and can happen If you eat up to, like, three gigantic carrots a day. (laughs) Number three, carrageenan is used as a thickening and emulsifying agent in dairy (laughs) products such as chocolate milk, cheese, and cottage cheese and ice cream. What plant is carrageenan derived from?
1: Uh, can I call a friend? Stacy.
2: Yes. <laughs> Don't do it, Stacy. Stay She's strong. Nope,
1: right. nope. No. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Seaweed. <laughs> Seaweed,
2: you got it. We'll give you a yes. That's why I said
1: that's what I go.
2: Number four most oranges have the same number of segments. How many segments?
0: She's tough, Terry.
2: Yes.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> that's I, have, hard. I, have, I have segmented millions of oranges <laughs> in my life. I cannot tell you. How many orange segments there is in the orange? Take a guess, uh, Chef.
0: It's only a two-hour show.
1: One, two, three, four, (laughs) five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Mother Nature makes uneven, so I'm going to say 11. It's 10. You were so darn
2: close. Strawberries, number five. Strawberries aren't really berries because berries only have seeds on the inside, and strawberries have its seeds on the outside is this true true True. yes yes (laughs) three yes absolutely two no on to stacy are you ready all right i'm ready an affogato is an italian dessert of coffee and what other ingredient
4: Uh, i'm gonna say ice cream pam or gelato
2: yes yes what is number Uh, didn't she have to say vanilla no she oh got it right. God. This you is a, so easy on her. Uh, I'm just letting you know this contest is fixed. Which is the most <laughs> expensive I just, said it. <laughs> I wanted to be... That
4: means, that means Tom's going down.
2: Yep. Which is the most expensive spice in the world by weight? Tap yes. Uh Yes. is the name given to the Crispy crusty bottom of which famous Spanish dish? Paella. Yay! Wow, she's tough cooking. You get she's tough. Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh Three for three. Number four. Jumbo. Uh, I mean gumbo <laughs> and jambalaya <laughs> are popular foods from which American city?
4: City. Uh, so that would be New Orleans.
2: You got it. And what Swedish word is used to describe a meal with a variety of hot and cold, savory dishes that you serve yourself?
4: Oh, this one's tough. Let's see. I thought it was German, but I'm going to guess smorgasbord. Yay, five for
2: five.
1: (laughs) Oh, she went blank on us, like five. Oh, my God.
2: (laughs) All right, Tom, are you ready? Well, I was ready until
0: that performance.
2: Um, first one, if I'm in Turkey eating layers of phyllo. stuffing. <laughs> eating layers of phyllo filled with chop nuts and honey, what have I ordered? Baklava. Yes. Um, what additives consist of the skin and bones of animals? What additives? Mm-hmm. Like gelatin type? Th- yes? Yes. Yes not gelatin type but gelatin there you go <laughs> is,
1: is it why is it called an additive not a uh...
2: well you use
0: it as an additive to like create thickness in this or that or pudding or whatever
2: russet russian banana and kestrel are varieties of what food? potatoes yes this is going to Coming very after well. that Stacey yes you are <laughs> oh but here we go this is, oh, this is okay. a uh... Although Spam is considered a popular Hawaiian treat, it did not originate there. What Midwestern state is it from? Ooh, Minnesota. How do you know that? Because that's where Hormel is. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And you can actually go to the Spam Museum, which we have to put on our bucket list. Mm -hmm. Although Minnesota might erupt. I don't know. I'm worried about it. On to a happier subject. You're four for four. Which Mexican food has a name meaning little donkey? Oh.
0: (laughs) Little donkey. Well, this is not, uh, this could be the end of me. This is easy? What, Mexican food? A burrito. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Wow, I guess that leaves Terry out in the cold. I was shipping two different prizes this week. (laughs) He doesn't pay for he the last one that I breaker? had to ship. No, no he, he lost. Fair and square. There's no tie I'm, for I'm the loser. I'm going a
1: huge amount of money there, <laughs> uh,
0: just wow. uh, If you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on Facebook at Hot Stove Society Radio Show. You're listening to us on Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. The show is produced today by Pamela Hinckley. Very nice job. Sound and production by Brandon Knapp. And our sound editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torrey. Remember, if you miss any episode of our show... On Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app.
1: Thanks for listening and have a fabulous summer weekend.